Who is the Servant of Yahweh, part three. And we're going to finish chapter 42 by answering that question as we continue to make our way through Isaiah 40 through 48. And what we see here is the servant of Yahweh has been introduced. We saw that in verses 1 to 4. Yet another servant is the subject of commentary and criticism. Um, And the question for us, what do we learn about God as we consider the servants of Yahweh? And we'd already noted, like I said, verses 1 to 4, it is the servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, And the reason we drew that conclusion, we look clearly in the New Testament, Christ himself applying that scripture to him. And then as well, other prophetic uh, examples applying that message to him or that title to him. And even these particular texts applied to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And there's another servant, which is in this bigger context, the servant, which is Cyrus. God is going to use Cyrus to free his people from the Babylonians. And then there's a third servant, uh, the servant Israel. But the problem with the servant Israel is they are disobedient. Obviously, the servant, Christ, is obedient. And even we would say that Cyrus is obedient as he responds to God's sovereign call in his life. But here it is, the covenant people, the ones that should be the witness to the dying world and the pagan nations around them, they are woefully disobedient. They are not a good servant. Uh, They have not set forth on their commission the way that they should. And I remind you that this is the first of the servant songs. And it's Isaiah 42, followed by Isaiah 49. Verses 1 to 13 is the second servant song. And then we would see Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 11 is a third servant song. And then, well, fourth servant song. No, I'm correct. Third servant song. And then Isaiah 52 and 53 is our fourth servant song. And all of those are unique. And that, especially Isaiah 52 and 53, most familiar to us, uh, the servant who would suffer But we also see that in Isaiah 50, because it says even in Isaiah 50, he is one who would not turn his back away from his mission, and he gave his back to beating. So Christ is the servant that we should follow, and all of us look to him, and we want to do what? Imitate his life. Think about the words of Paul when Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And this is what we're called to do. And we have such a lofty really opportunity, and we might even say privilege before us, that now the God that we once hated and rejected, uh, now we can emulate, we can follow, and we can love. This is a great truth we find in Ephesians chapter 5, where Paul says, therefore be imitators of God. Think about that. What a lofty calling that is, that now you can be an imitator of the one that was formerly, at least you to him, an enemy. Now you can be an imitator of God and one you once formerly, it says, ungodly in Romans chapter 5. Now you can be an imitator of one that you were in a state of helplessness. Now you can live by the grace of God to the glory of God. What What a great transformation that takes place when we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is thoroughly, thoroughly radical, isn't it? And especially perhaps more radical if we spend a portion of our life Uh, in the world, 
And then the Lord snatches us out of the world and he redirects us. What a radical change that is. And some of us can look back on our life and we can say, I remember a point in time when I was living this way and now my life has radically changed. The things that were once my passion and my desire, and I might even say what's appropriate even to this context and this message, my idols are no longer my idols. Now, now there is one that I look to, that I admire, and I set aside the things of my heart and my desires for his desires. And I remind you of the context by way of a contextual context, and I'll say a contemporary context. Well, contextually, um, the writer, that is, Isaiah, continues to write for the Lord, and the Lord is making his case against idolatry. Idols are worthless, they are meaningless, they are nothing. And time and time again, God is making that point. But there's a contemporary context, and it is this. Nothing has really changed. And I said this to you a different way several weeks ago. Nothing has really changed. It is still a matter of people substituting something other than God. Do you agree with that? This is what we see in society today. So idolatry is alive and well. Now, there are certain cultures today where they literally do bow down before idols, uh, uh, figures. But uh, for the most part in Western society, and in other parts as well, it is mainly an idol of the heart. And those idols are quite large. And they can be idols that are all-encompassing. That is, they, they control one's life. And the only way that we can rid ourselves of these idols is first through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then for even for the believer, the believer must still fight idols. I asked you a question today. Are any of you still fighting idols in your life? Okay, that's good. You're honest. You're honest. All of us are fighting to some degree some idol in our life, something that we need to put aside. It's called the process of sanctification. Uh, men substitute worshiping the living God with other things. And just as the problem is the same, we can also say this, the solution is the same. The solution was the same then. What is the solution? Believe in the living God. What is the solution? Hope in him. A, a servant is coming. What is the solution? Trust God. He is unlike your idols. He is the one who has created all things. He is the one who has initiated this covenant. He is the one who has been faithful. Trust him. So it's still the same today. Uh, what is the solution to idols? We must go to an unpolluted source. See, the sources that they were seeking at this time were all polluted. And they were polluted because they were based in paganism. And today, people can choose also polluted sources as well. They can choose the offerings of the world. Or they can follow this solution, which is to trust God. Believe in him. Put aside your own aspirations. Put aside your desires and know that the living God is the ultimate solution for life. He is the God of salvation, is he not? And men have been forever attempting to save themselves. Nothing is really different. The means are different. But the uh, false sense of accomplishment is still the same. The vanity of it all is still the same. Men want to save themselves. And that is the height of arrogance. Do you agree with me on that? It is the height of arrogance that says, I can achieve spiritual acceptability before a holy God on my own. 
but we realize that it can only come through the perfect and sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Amen? That is the only way. Um, the world continues to drink, really, from a polluted well. And they wonder at times, as they drink from this polluted well, this polluted source, why are they suffering from various spiritual, and we might even say social maladies? Well, because of that very fact. The source is incorrect. And my time in Ethiopia, it was a beautiful time uh, into Addis Ababa and a couple of days there. And Addis Ababa is quite a city. It's, it's fascinating um, when you go there. And um, I've never seen anything like it. How in Addis Ababa, you, there, there are more buildings, high-rise buildings going up than you would find in Manhattan. And it's amazing. But you saw, I saw your faces like, what? Yes, but the thing about Addis is this. You can be in one section, you see these high-rises going up, and you turn the corner, and someone's on the street with their goats taking them down the street. You don't exactly see that in Manhattan, do you? <laughs> no, you don't. And then you turn another corner, and you think, wow, people are living like this. Then another corner, it's like, oh, this is just like L.A. Not a whole lot different that's here. And um, on that trip coming back, and beautiful people there in areas, and a chance to um, teach. Uh, it was over 100 pastors from an area called Hawassa that we had the opportunity to do training, and, and the Lord was so gracious in that they gave us a Macedonian call in the sense that you must return, and when are you going to return? And I said, we will come back. I can't go more than once a year, but I'm going to send some of my teammates. They can come and work with you, and a wonderful opportunity for the gospel. I enjoy that. Um, I enjoy the different cultures and seeing God at work with different people. But we also had this conversation on the way back about ministry in Angola, the difficulty of it there. And someone was sharing with me where people are in really a very, very remote area and how their children are awfully sick. And why? Because of water. And they, this, this river where they wash their clothes, uh, this river where they bathe, and this river where animals drink and also defecate is also the same river where some of them are drinking the water. The source is bad. Yeah. And it, he was talking about what they do to help these kids medically and, and what happens to their internal system um, when you grow up drinking water like that and how it can be reversed, but it can be rather difficult. You know, in this passage, God is telling us again that I am the solution. I am absolutely pure, unpolluted. Why are you drinking from these other fountains? Why are you drinking from this source? And my mind goes right off outline, but I want you to, to notice something right now. Turn with me to Isaiah 55. So hold your finger in Isaiah 42. I love Isaiah 55. Ho, everyone who says, what does it say? Come to the, all you have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Isn't that, a, isn't that the gospel? This is the gospel. So he's saying you can come and there's a source of water and you cannot pay for it. You cannot possibly pay for it. Actually, what it's saying, every attempt to pay for it creates debt. 
Because that's what happens in, um, from a New Testament standpoint, or just from the standpoint of salvation. Every attempt to pay for salvation creates more debt. Said differently, when you try to earn your salvation, this creates more spiritual separation. What, what bridges the gap? As a person coming to grips that I am a pauper, I have nothing to offer. And with the words of Isaiah, that your righteousness is like filthy rags. So I come before you and I can buy without money and without cost. But what is so beautiful about Isaiah 55, that it is tied in, uh, linked in such a way that cannot be broken to Isaiah 52 and 53, because there is one who would pay for us. Amen. And now we can come freely to drink. We've already noted, if we go back to Isaiah 42, just by way of a quick review, um, what is God saying here? And first, in verse 5, he reasserts his sovereign creation. Notice in Isaiah 42, and then in verse 5, he reasserts it, thus says the Lord, or thus says God, Yahweh, who created, stretched out, spread, and gives breath to all people. I am the one who creates. And then he has a restatement of his sovereign care. And we see it again. What does he say in verse 6 and 7? I am Yahweh. I've called you in righteousness. I will hold you by the hand. I'll watch over you. I will appoint you. I will open blind eyes. I'll bring out prisoners from the dungeon. And then his sovereign character is restated or reiterated here in verse 8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. I will give my glory to not to another and know my praises to graven images. And just that statement, that is my name, my glory. This is a statement of his character. And then notice verse 9, a really a revelation of sovereign change. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Now I declare new things. Before they spring forth, I proclaim them to you. What, what is this change? God is saying that I'm going to bring a servant who is going to make all things right. And it's also a precursor, if you will, to a new covenant that is coming. The old is passing away, the new is before you. And then there's a response of the sovereign creation. And then what is that response in verses 10 to 13? Sing to the Lord a new song, sing his praise from the end of the earth. And it goes on to tell us why creation should sing out, because God is a victorious warrior. Isn't it good as a Christian to sing praises to the Lord? I mean, even the songs that we're singing earlier, I, we, I could have said, well, let's do another set. It's wonderful to sing to a God who has redeemed you because there's something in your heart that says, God, thank you, you've given me a new song. When I used to sing with great passion and consistency, perhaps the songs of the world, now I can sing the songs of Zion. And when you can sing with con something that has content, that is a qualifier because there's some songs that are not worth singing. Do you agree with me? Now, I'm not a hymns-only person. I enjoy hymns, but I'm not a hymns-only person. There's some that are that way. I don't believe in that. Um, I, and I believe there's contemporary music if we understand the word. I just understand the word contemporary just from a chronological standpoint, not a philosophical standpoint. That's all. It's just newer music, and that newer music is excellent. As a matter of fact, when I was in Ethiopia, um, and Ethiopians, because they were not, never colonized, um, they, for the most part, only 10 or 15% are speaking English. And um, so when I went to the church in Hawassa, I was being translated 
and it was a great experience. And I recorded some of their singing. It was a young man that was singing. And I, I was lifted up. You say, wait, how can you be lifted up and you don't understand? Um, because I asked for the interpretation. And I heard this young man singing, but I knew there was something that he was singing that had content to it. And I asked him, what is he singing? He says, oh, he's talking about the precious blood of Jesus Christ and how it takes, it reaches down into hell and it brings it up, up again so that now we can give him praise. And I recorded it and I replayed it and replayed it. I don't know how many times. And, and afterwards, I actually went to that young man. I said, and tell him this for me. You blessed my soul. You prepared me to preach the word of God. Continue to sing the songs of Zion. The songs of Zion should be sung because now he's done a new work in our heart. Amen. Now, our present outline is this. There are three parts to it that will help us understand God more as we see his character displayed as he interacts with this other servant. And it is this, the servant in God's righteous judgment, the servant in God's righteous assessment, and then the servant in God's righteous chastisement. So judgment is coming. Why? In part because he assesses them spiritually. And once he's assessed them, then he says, I'm going to have to chasten you. Now, right away, I can say to you, um, the word chastisement, um, should not necessarily uh, be something that we look at as negative because the scripture tells us, and I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'll come back again, that God chastens every son whom he receives. And what happens when he chastens us? It produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness because God is doing what when he chastens us? He is driving out something I said before, some of the idols of the heart. He's conforming us more to the image of Christ. And that's why when people teach that suffering or difficulty and believers going through hardship is unbiblical and you shouldn't go through difficulty and hardship because you're a child of the king and you've overcome that, you've misunderstood the king. Because what the king must do at times to his subjects who are not as focused as they should be and not as loving as they should be and not thinking as eternally as they should be, he has to chasten them to focus their heart and their thought. Does he not? Well, I'll just say, he has done it to me. Has he done it to you? And if he has, you can interpret that as an expression of God's loving care for you. Be concerned if you've never faced chastisement you may not be one of his. That's the opposite of what happens in juvenile preaching and theology. So let's consider this right away. First, the servant in God's righteous judgment. The servant in God's righteous judgment, because in this section, really 10 to 17, uh, is, you could look at that as one unit. And what it's preparing us for is a bigger discourse. It, and it's going to be 42, really 18, all the way to chapter 44, verse 22. God continues this argument. Remember, some of you that haven't been with us before, God is doing what? There's a trial that is, going, that is taking place. And God is making the arguments time and time again. And that's why at times he must restate because restatement is necessary because it will help convince. Because the heart is awfully forgetful, is it not? Along with the mind as well. And we know sometimes that's evident because we go upstairs or go to another room to pick up something and we get to that room and what happens? Why am I here? <laughs> no, seriously, I did that this morning. 
I went upstairs because I'm packing and I'm getting things ready. And I came up and I saw something else that distracted me. And I picked that up and I thought, okay, great. Then I started to go down the stairs and I thought, wait a minute. I didn't actually come up here for that. <laughs> I had forgotten so soon. <laughs> That's what happens to the mind, but also on a spiritual level with the heart. There's one moment where you're saying, God, I trust you. Why would I not trust you? You gave your only begotten son. Why would I not love you? Why would I not give my all? We hear a message and we respond to that message and we say, yes, that's my new commitment. We go to a workshop or a seminar. Absolutely, sign me up. We go to retreat and we see excellent messages. You've blessed my soul. I will commit. And then lo and behold, what happens? The heart does what? It drifts away. That's not a part of my presentation. <laughs> it drifts away. <laughs> it drifts away. <laughs> Amen. That's an idol right now. <laughs> Deal away with it. <laughs> so God is saying, believe me, believe me, believe me, believe me. Believe me, believe me. Why? I'm sovereign, 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 sovereign. Why? I'm the creator, creator, creator. And maybe then the heart would say, yes, I'll hold fast. Because God is holding fast to us, amen? So the servant in God's righteous judgment. Again, the Lord wants his people to believe that he, he has not forgotten them. He is capable of delivering them. From their oppressor, the great Babylonian people. He is the God who is sovereign over all things. And as I've said, it's this restatement is necessary because of the drifting heart. Notice, if you will, verse 14. And really throughout um, verses, if you look 14 through um, 16, notice the most important pronoun, I. We hear a lot about pronouns today, don't we? A bunch of madness, do we not? I just heard someone recently, a very famous entertainer, uh, their teenage daughter, when they came on stage, introduced her as they, them. I mean, I really, when I hear these things, I know it's a part of our culture, but something, I, I, I sort of want to wake up from this bad dream and say, no, it was all, it was like the Twilight Zone, right? We've been in the twilight zone for several years, and people aren't actually referring to themselves as they, them, we, and whatever. She, that's who you are. He, that's who you are. No, you are not a plural. You're one individual. Well, one could be a plural. I'm legion, right? I am legion. That's the only way you could be a plural. And that's one plural you do not want, Amen. <laughs> yeah, so he says, notice, why these pronouns? He says, notice here the shift. I have kept. I have kept silent. I will groan. I will both gas. I will lay waste. I will make the rivers. Verse 16, I will lead the blind. I will make darkness into light. All of these things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. Why is this necessary? Because he is shifting a confidence from Judah to the living God. Do not trust in self. I will do this because if Judah is thinking to themselves, how can we possibly escape Babylon? You can't. But I can make a way. 
And it comes by way of salvation. If someone says, how can I possibly be deserving of God? You can't, but he can make a way. A person may say that, how can I possibly overcome this circumstance? You can't, but by the grace of God, you may. But the tendency is for us to trust self too much. So he shifts and makes sure they understand it is the Lord who will do all things. And notice he says in verse 14, restrain. This language is curious, isn't it? He says, I kept silent for a long time. I kept still and restrained myself. And, and actually when it says kept still and restrained, it's in an imperfect tense. And what he's saying is that I repeatedly remained still and I continually kept restraining myself. And what he's doing by using that tense is almost taking us through a bit of the history of Judah is saying, I sent prophets, but you didn't hear. I sent holy men that you didn't hear. And I thought maybe in that moment I could help you. Maybe in this moment you would repent, but you didn't. And this is an indication of God's great patience with us, isn't it? God is a patient God with all of us. And so he says, but now he gives sort of this imagery of a woman's gestation period coming to an end. And now he says, now I'm going to give birth. And what is he going to give birth to? Notice what he says. Um, I have kept still and restrained myself now like a woman in labor. I will groan. I will both gasp and pant. And what is happening here? It's the image of now that woman is getting ready to give birth. The child is coming. And what is God going to give birth to? I think here God is going to give birth to now. He's saying, I'm going to lay waste to the mountains and the hills. The vegetation is going to wither the rivers and the coastlands. And I'm going to dry up all the ponds. God is saying, now I am going to give birth to what? Your deliverance. I'm going to wipe out the Babylonians and I'm going to bring you home. I've wanted to do it before, but in one sense, you kept sinning and you did not see your need. And even now, they have not fully repented, but God is then demonstrating his grace towards them. Notice, if you will, in verse 16, he says at the end, these things I will do, and I will not leave them undone. Um, and beautiful, because he is the one that's going to light, he's the one that's going to guide them, although there are blind people. You remember before I talked about um, blindness and how one can adapt. And I, I gave you the story of my uncle saying who um, eventually would lose his blindness, but could get around his home because he had grew up there and he knew it, and he could walk around and turn on the television and do things. And uh, because he was familiar with it. However, if you picked him up, which at times I did, and you took him to another environment, he couldn't do that. And God is saying to Judah, I'm going to lead you by a way that you do not know. Why does he have to lead them? Because he's saying, I will exercise my sovereign care over you and deliver you and take you back by a way that is unfamiliar to you. You blind people. And just like when I'd have to take my uncle saying somewhere else, uh, I'd have to be with him. He'd grab my arm and go with me because it was unfamiliar to him. But when he was at home, he seemed to be just fine. God is going to deliver in a manner that says, you need my spiritual guidance. This is a thought, though. Notice again, verse 16, and I will not leave them undone. I will accomplish all of this. The thought to me goes to Philippians 1 and 6. Philippians 1, 6, what does Paul say? In New Testament terms, um, just go there with me. 
um, just to look at it together. Philippians 1.6. Paul says in verse 3, I thank my God in all remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of what? Of Christ Jesus. Every one of you that knows the Lord Jesus Christ, there is an absolute guarantee that you will realize your full um, salvation. There is an unbroken chain of salvation. And there is no weak link in it. So from the standpoint of God's divine foreknowledge, knowing you before you were even created, before there was a universe, all the way to glorification, it is one chain um, that is impossible to break. And God is saying, he will complete the work in you. And he says to Judah, I am the one who will accomplish all these things. You have no ability to do it. He will not leave it undone. He will rescue us from the dungeon. Notice verse 17, though. Uh, there is a warning that comes, though. He says, They will be turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in idols, who say to graven images, You are our gods. He is going to put some to shame. So now we have a contrast. There is an opportunity. If we trust in the living God, we will be unashamed. But if we trust in the vanity of one's heart, we will indeed be shamed. And this is what he's saying to Judah. God is the one who initiates and will complete salvation. Um, one of the greatest hymn writers ever is Charles Wesley. And, um, and one of my favorites is, And Can It Be? I love it. What a wonderful song. It just tells us, is this possible? And that, that really is the thrust of the message, is it not? Is it, is it really possible that the living God would actually give his life for me and die for me? In one sense, it's, it's too good to be true. It's said differently. And I do still, even at this stage of my life where I've known the Lord uh, for so many years, that I often reflect on that. This seems to be too good to be true, that I actually can know the Lord and then I can minister for the Lord and do these things for the Lord. And I talked about wanting to wake up from a horrible dream and see society different. I will never wake up from that. But from this other thing, it is, not a, it is not a nightmare. It is one of the best realities that one can experience. Amen? To know God. But listen to what Wesley said. Because God says, I'm going to bring some that are blind. I'm going to bring them out of the dungeon. And the fourth stanza of And Can It Be, it reads this way. It says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay. Fast bound in sin in nature's night, that I diffuse a quickening ray. I woke the danger, the dungeon flame with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen. <laughs> and we're all bound in sin. We were all in darkness. And what happened as he says, there was that quickening ray of light. And then all of a sudden, my chains fell off. And even the dungeon that I was in, it was dreary and dark. Now it became a place of light. And this is what God does for us when he brings us to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He quickens the heart and the mind and the soul. And now we can serve him, whereas before we despise him. So he says in verse 17, however, 
If you choose idols instead, you will be put to shame. And as I said before, there are contemporary idols today. And what are some of the contemporary idols? Uh, there's the idol of status. We want to be recognized a certain way. There's the idol of material gain. Uh, the things that I have then define me. There's the idol of education, of academics. There's the idol of human praise. You, you want to be recognized by other individuals. There's the idol of acceptance. We want to be accepted, and therefore sometimes what happens in the spiritual realm, we want to be accepted so much that we compromise. There's the idol of sexual expression. In my, how our culture is so indulgent in that. And then there's the idol of physical attraction. What makes one beautiful in the time and effort and resources placed in trying to be something that perhaps God didn't make you to be is at times a pause. And then there's also the idol of religious achievement. Look what I've done. Recognize me for who I am and my piety. That's an idol as well. Because sometimes we think, my son asked me recently, younger son, he asked me about a definition of what it means to be worldly. And I said, that's a good question. I, was, um, I just addressed it in a men's meeting or I spoke recently about what it means to be worldly. And I was talking to the men and I essentially said something like this to them. Sometimes we think about being worldly, our mind goes to, well, that's a worldly individual. They're in the world, they go clubbing, they're a womanizer, uh, they have foul language, uh, they smoke things, they drink things, they get drunk. That's worldly. Oh, my friends, no. That may be worldly, but it, that, that is not the whole of the definition of worldly. Let me tell you this. Some of the most worldly people are religious people. Absolutely. Yeah. They're not thinking eternally. They think so much of self and self-achievement. That is worldly. It is worldly when we don't think eternally and we think temporarily. When we think about this life and what we can have in this life and achieve in this life, that is worldly. A person can be worldly that is a hardworking individual. They're committed to their marriage. There's fidelity in their relationship and still be worldly because they're not thinking what? Eternally. So we should not be a people who are worldly, which means we need to constantly ask, what are the idols of my heart? Here's our second consideration. The servant in God's righteous assessment. His righteous assessment. Notice verse 18. What does it say? Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my, what does it say? My servant. So now obviously there's a contrast. Uh, it can't be the servant Christ, obviously. So what servant is left? It is Israel. And, and so deaf is my messenger whom I send. Now, what's interesting about this language, think with me for a moment, or deaf as a messenger whom I send. Um, a messenger, one that is sent to give, deliver uh, the message from a superior. And so what would happen? And cultural setting, uh, a messenger comes in, and the person delivering the message says to him, go to that kingdom, and you take forth terms of peace. Here are my terms of peace. And then there, it's recorded. Uh, physically, it could be recorded, but they must hear it as well. And so there's a sense in which how can you possibly be a messenger when you don't hear the message? You can't speak for me when you haven't heard yourself. How can you speak to the things that are not in your heart? That's essentially what's being said. So he says, Israel, what are you, what are you doing? 
You're supposed to be my messenger, but now you can't see, you can't hear, because you choose not to. Look at this idea of deafness. Let's go through some parts of Isaiah together. Look with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6, verse 10, it says, um, verse 9, he said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but they do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. So God is casting a judgment on them as saying, because you've resisted, I'm going to allow you to remain in this state. Look with me at chapter 42. Go back to 42. 42, and then you see this. We already saw it in verse 7. To open blind eyes and to bring out prisoners from the dungeon. And then in verse 16, as we already saw, he's going to lead the blind by a way they do not know. And then in verse 18, it's stated again. And then in verse 19, who was blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger, are so blind as the servant of the Lord. Go with me to chapter 43. Chapter 43, verse 8. Bring out the people who are blind, even though they have eyes, and the deaf, though they have ears. Chapter 56, it comes up again. Chapter 56, verse 10. Again, this sense of spiritual insensitivity. It says, verse 10, His watchmen are blind, and all of them know nothing. All of them are mute dogs, unable to bark. Dreamers lying down who love to slumber. In that first part, what an indictment that is in verse 10. His watchmen are blind. That's, you wouldn't get hired, would you? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, that's not in your skill set to be a watchman if that's your condition. It may be something else, but no, that's a horrible combination. But he says, that's who you are. And you were supposed to be a watchman for my people. You were to be a watchman for the nations. Let's pause for a moment. Let's bring this into the contemporary. What is the position of the church? The scripture says of the church, it is a protector and pillar of truth. And when the church can no longer speak to the ills of society, in part because those ills are within the church as well, then it's no longer the watchman it should be. It's no longer the messenger. It's no longer the servant. And remember, the church is made up of individuals. So if individuals are so infatuated and in love with the world and they're thinking so temporally instead of eternally, then you can no longer be an effective watchman or a messenger or a servant. So again, these messages are not just ancient messages for uh, a people in a place a long time ago, and we can understand them just historically. These principles resonate throughout Christian history, and even for today. So he says, but here's grace, though. Look at Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32. And I'm just going to give you the others. I don't have time to go there now. Isaiah 32 and 10. Within a year and a few days, you will be troubled, O complacent daughters, for vengeance is ended and the fruit gathering will not come. Because God is saying, you have resisted. And then look at chapter 35. 35. But here is something that 
can happen. Here's a, a beautiful future even for the people of God. Then he says here, verse 4, Say to those with anxious heart, Take courage, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. And this is what he's communicated in 42. I'm going to come. Wait. Notice verse 5. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. God will bring about change. I want to do this. I want to go to the last part. My last point is this. The servant of and God's righteous chastisement. So briefly, go back to 42 with me. Because there's something I want to say at the conclusion that's, I think, important and relevant for us. Um, Verse 23, what does he say? He pleads for them to repent, but they do not. God is a God who wants sinners to come to faith. He wants his covenant people to come back and be cared for. But then he, verse 24, he sovereignly chastens them. Now notice what he says. Who gave up Jacob for spoil and Israel for plunderers? Was it not Yahweh? And what he's saying here, yes, you're, you've been taken to Assyria by um, the, the northern kingdom, now the southern kingdom, you're taken to Babylon. I'm the one that did it. That's a principle for us to learn. That it, there are times when we're faced with difficulty, understand that God may be allowing it for a sovereign reason. And then, verse 25. So he poured out of them the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and he set him aflame all around. So he chastens the people of God, but what's their response? Notice verse 25. Yet they did not recognize it. And notice how it ends. And it burned him, but he paid no attention. Wow. That's not a storybook ending to this, is it? Amazing how God can speak forth truth and people not hear it. Now that was true for all of us. At some point in time, we were hearing truth, but then we weren't hearing it. And God is saying here, I'm, I'm bringing truth, but I'm also bringing punishment that will perhaps wake you up. It will shake you, and you would say to yourself, what's happening to me? Why is this happening to us? Have we offended God? And then we would look to heaven, and God would heal. But he says they didn't recognize it. They paid no attention. It's amazing how some people can hear the same truths, but have very, very different responses. Uh, there's been a lot of conversation about um, the recent Supreme Court decision. And um, I expect the world to respond a certain way, uh, but not church-going people. And that's why at times we realize that church-going people doesn't mean that they are Christians or in Christ. I came across a very interesting article. Um, and here's the title. Two professing Christians on opposite ends of the abortion question. And they put forth four questions to them. Number one. Question number one, how does your faith shape your position on abortion? The one writer says this, My faith informs me that God created human beings in his image. He loves human beings, and he warns us to share the same love and promote justice towards every other human being. He goes on to say, to kill an innocent person, then is wrong. The other person, this one gentleman, is uh, a male. The other person, Laura Ellis, Trent Horn. She makes, here's her response. How does my faith help me on my position? I do believe in the sanctity of human life. And I would love to see a world with less abortions. 
But I also know that banning abortion is going to most harshly affect people in society who are already really marginalized. And rich, note this, and she is a white woman herself, just to put it in context, and rich white women are always going to be able to have access to safe, affordable abortion. So that's where her faith informs her. Because we have to be careful and watch out for marginalized people. Are there marginalized people in the world? Of course there are. We live in a sinful world. But to say my faith tells me this, and listen to what else she says. Uh, These are the kind of people that Jesus was always advocating for in his life and ministry. I first and foremost am always going to side with a living, breathing human woman and what's best for her and for her family situation. Oh my, so you believe in the sanctity of human life, however. That's a big however, is it not? No, unacceptable. So second question, what Bible passages do you cite to justify your position? The gentleman says this, the Bible doesn't explicitly mention abortion, but he also goes on to say, which is true, it doesn't also talk about pedophilia either, but we surely know that it's wrong. And he cites Exodus 23, Proverbs 6, Proverbs um, yeah, 6, 16 to 17, Luke 1, Exodus 23, which what I'll all agree with, especially in Luke, and the child leaped in her womb. Now, the woman says this, we have to be really careful when we try to make a topic as complicated as abortion and try to justify it or condemn it through a single verse or a couple of verses that are taken out of context. The Bible is an incredibly complicated book written by multiple people over different historical and social contexts. It could be irresponsible to just pull out a sentence or two and then relate it to 21st century America. The Bible does not talk explicitly about abortion, pro or con, in any way. It's just not there. Oh, my. So let's not have biblical principles affect our society. Question number three. What is the biggest myth about people who share their position? The the gentleman says, the biggest myth that people have about my position on abortion is that it is merely a religious position. There are many religious people who oppose abortion, just like there are many religious people who oppose racial segregation in the United States or slavery when it was a part of our nation. It doesn't have to be a religious, quote, person to say that this is wrong. It's something, and I would say this, there's something in man that says you don't do certain things. There's something in every human being. God has placed it in them. It says that's wrong or right. It's called a conscience. However, when a conscience is repeatedly violated, it becomes seared and it doesn't function properly. And there's a fourth question. In one sense, it's, I've said it all. Why bring up something like that? God is saying you're blind. <laughs> you see, but you don't see. You hear, but you don't hear. We can be exposed to truth, and the question is, what we, will we do with that truth? This is an idol of this young woman's heart. And she is actually... And her title is, she's over, she works with, I'm sorry, what is it here? It's right here. Um, Baptist Ministry Advocates, Women in Baptist Ministry Advocates. So she fights for women to be in ministry in the church, but she's lost something. 
Now, I'll close with this thought. I know I'm going a minute over, or five. Uh, doesn't matter what you've done. Doesn't matter. There's a forgiving God, amen? Judah, treacherous, saw their northern brothers taken away. You would think they would learn from it, but they didn't learn. Treacherous covenant violation. But God is saying what? I'm going to come for you. <laughs> and I'm going to lead the blind in another way. You don't deserve it, but no one deserves it. And this makes our God the God that he is. Amen? A forgiving God that loves to forgive sinners who see their need. Amen? Father, we thank you for these words you give us. Show us grace as we go from here. Help us to appreciate you all the more and how you love us despite us, how you forgive us when we're so undeserving. But it's only because of Christ, whose blood is so sufficient. Amen.